Hello, Michael Volkoff here for Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Hope everyone's staying safe, staying healthy. Um, I'm glad to have Tom Fox on today uh, for an interview and a discussion about the revised Justice Department and SEC FCPA guidance. Before we get started, how about a word from our sponsor, Steel Compliance Solutions. In compliance and ethics management, Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment, considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steel's end-to-end -end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steel's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management, investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to day-to-day -day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's Compliance Solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Great to welcome back uh, to the podcast uh, my good friend and colleague uh, Tom Fox uh, to talk about the, the recent revisions to the FCPA guidance. Tom, great to be here. I'm glad you could join us. Staying safe in Houston, Mike. And that is, uh, and that's a tough job these days. It really is kind of uh, scary to see what's going on in Houston these days. Uh, my wife was in New York during the terrible time, and that was scary. But it's, uh, I hope you guys uh, are are staying safe, and I hope people are being really careful. They're beginning to be to be a little more careful in terms of wearing masks and that sort of thing. So, hopefully, uh, that we'll move towards that. Yeah, it's about time, right? Um, well, I'm in California, so look, we're no better here right now in terms of Southern California. But anyway, well, look, hope everybody's staying safe and healthy. Tom, it's great to have you on every time I get a chance to, to corral some of your time. Uh, but I thought, uh, I call it in the dead of night, but July 2nd, 2020, uh, DOJ and the SEC issued the second edition of its FCPA guidance. And uh, I just, you know, Tom, I'm a huge fan of the FCPA guidance. I consider it probably the best guidance document for FCPA practitioners. Um, but I wanted to sort of get your initial take on this release. I think it's, uh, you know, anytime the government puts something out like this, it's, it's really important and people need to take a look at it. But go ahead, your thoughts. 
So, Mike, I would just uh, actually try to perhaps stay, say it a little stronger. This is the single best one volume compendium of all things FCPA. It has case law. It has the statutes. It has DOJ interpretation. It has the uh, now 11 hallmarks of an effective compliance program. Uh, it has declinations. It has hypotheticals. Uh, it has ancillary laws to the uh, FCPA that can be used in anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement. It has um, the internal control uh, or accounting provisions, books and records and internal controls. It uh, is updated now with the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which I'm sure we'll go into. And, and it really is. Uh, it, it's a fabulous resource guide. It doesn't matter if you're a one-week compliance practitioner or, in our case, much longer. Uh, there's something in there for everyone. Uh, it is unbelievably priced at no charge, uh, available on the Department of Justice website. Uh, the prior first edition was available for $25 for a soft copy, uh, uh, so I hope that will be available. But it's something that I kept on my desk literally from the day it came out up until uh, the time we moved. Yeah, and I, 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 I hear you, and, and one of the most important points I've always said to practitioners is that with the hypotheticals that they included, and they included them with, uh, again, but with not many changes in that, in the hypotheticals, uh, but the hypotheticals themselves are safe harbors. If you can analyze and structure an action like, for example, bringing foreign officials to your uh, place of business, to do training or education type services, there's a hypothetical in there that addresses that issue. So if you structure things in accordance with these hypotheticals, they're safe harbors to me. And that's, you know, to get this out of federal prosecutors, Tom, I mean, what other law out there have federal prosecutors sort of drawn the lines? There's not one other federal law. That's why it's so extraordinary from my viewpoint that DOJ put this out to begin with and now to update it is even better. Uh, so absolutely. Let's, absolutely. I can't agree more, Mike. Yeah, let's turn to and what I always loved was the hallmarks of a corporate compliance, you know, effective co corporate compliance program. I thought in 2012, I thought that was the most valuable part of, uh, you know, for compliance practitioners. And the, the hallmarks here, and I, I wanted to get your thoughts because to me, the, the sort of headline out of that area besides, uh, you know, some updates, which we'll talk about, was a new hallmark. And if you want to go ahead and sort of explain this, Tom, and how significant you think it is. Sure, Mike. Uh, the new hallmark was entitled Investigation, Analysis, and Remediation of Conduct. And it could not have started with a stronger statement which I will just read, quote, the truest measure of an effective compliance program is how it responds to misconduct. Now, there are three prongs to a best practices compliance program, uh, prevent, detect, and remediate. Uh, typically, we hit focused on detect or prevent as the most effective, and of course, remediate comes after the first two fail. Nevertheless, the Department of Justice here is telling us that it's it's how you respond, and you know whether that's my father telling me it's how you deal with failure that that uh, really sets you apart uh, or, you know, or something more significant. The Department of Justice wants to see how you have responded to misconduct. To do that, though, you have to understand what the misconduct is. This means uh, a, a more detailed and more effective 
investigation, but more importantly, a root cause analysis. So basically, this is the root cause analysis hallmark. Root cause analysis have been a part of the DOJ's public comment since the original evaluation of corporate compliance programs released in February of 2017. And it's not surprising that it's now formalized into the best, uh, or excuse me, the uh, hallmarks of an effective compliance program, but it, it puts root cause analysis and then how you use that information uh, going forward that um, once you receive an allegation or even a suspicion uh, of an allegation, it must be properly triaged. Your investigation protocol needs to kick in with a detailed and effective investigation in a reasonable time with a response to the investigative findings. But it's it's not just your investigation, it's your root cause analysis. Uh, so uh, it builds upon the uh, 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs. It builds upon the 2019 evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And indeed, the 2020 uh, update, which was released on June 1, uh, on root cause analysis. So uh, certainly an appropriate addition, one that was uh, needed, uh, and one that the Department of Justice, as, as you continually tell us, they clearly communicate what they intend and what they expect. But here they've been telling us point blank, you need to do a root cause analysis. You need to take that information and you need to use that as the form, the basis of your remediation going forward. So uh, that is a new hallmark. Uh, it's not something that's new to the compliance community, but it uh, brings the uh, hallmarks, I think, up to date in a way that was necessary. So there's one aspect of this, Tom, and I, I wanted to ask you about this. I saw I was at a presentation at the ECI uh, by Boeing, and believe it or not, uh, this was unbelievable coming from Boeing, but they um, actually had a, they formalized the sort of root cause and lessons learned to funnel back into, you know, updating their compliance program and things like that from lessons learned and root cause analysis. And they went to the, they went to the point of setting up a committee to do this. So every investigation you know, where, which was substantiated and it's a non-HR type of thing, they would have it go to this committee who would do an analysis of what you're talking about in terms of lessons learned, root cause analysis. And then that would be formally reported back to compliance in a sense for with recommendations. What do you think of that? Do you think that's overkill? Do you, you know, I mean, obviously not every company can do that, but a company of a big size like Boeing was doing it. What do you think of that type of structure? Do, or should it be structured? That's one way to structure it. I think Boeing is doing that because of the hole they've dug themselves into with their corrupt corporate culture. Uh, but it's certainly an appropriate response. It, it wouldn't surprise me to see that in a company that has sustained a major FCPA violation, that has a corporate monitor in place, or even uh, an obligation to uh, report to the Department of Justice uh, on its uh, on an annual basis without a monitorship. So it, it's it's a rigorous step. It's a step that if your company has had a lot of problems, uh, it could be an appropriate step. Uh, but uh, other companies that may have a more mature compliance program uh, that they don't need that step. But it, it's certainly a way that you can go. Well, that's uh, I mean, I think it's something that everybody has to look at in terms of, you know, how to meet this sort of new hallmark, because I think, you know, once it's a hallmark, that means that DOJ is going to look at these really carefully 
and they're going to evaluate your program based upon uh, that hallmark, uh, don't you think? Absolutely. So, well, let me uh, let's the one other theme I wanted to talk to you about, and I think this came through not only in this document, uh, but also in the previous update to, to the evaluation of the corporate compliance program. And I want to sort of get your your thoughts on this, and that is that there seems to be a greater emphasis now uh, in from the department, and they're emphasizing it as much as they can, I think, on what I call the continuous improvement loop. Um, and we had here, you know, more language uh, throughout with regard to the importance of not just getting sort of periodic updates, but sort of monitoring your program. Uh, taking that data into account, updating your risk assessment, and then updating your compliance program in a loop of continuous uh, improvement. That's what the thought was. And what what is what is DOJ trying to tell people to do, and what's your thoughts on that? So that, uh, Mike, was more deeply or thoroughly fleshed out in the 2020 update, which was released in June. But it brings up a great point, which is how do you read the evaluation in conjunction with the FCPA Resource Guide, second edition? And I think they're designed to be read complementary. Complementary. Yeah, I butchered that one. Sorry. No, that's good. That's good. Sorry. Uh, my, my Texan won't allow me to pronounce that word. Um, the uh, uh, But they're both, they, they, you, you need to read them both. And the evaluation fleshes out the 10 hallmarks, or now 11 hallmarks, in a way that is not present in the resource guide. The resource guide gives us the general hallmarks, but read together with the evaluation, you really have exactly what you need from the, from the Department of Justice as a benchmark of a minimum best practices compliance program. And uh, so it's, it's huge, hugely important from that perspective. And the resource guide second edition has so much more than the hallmarks of an effective compliance program. So I find that the more general description is appropriate, but your sentiment that the DOJ has evolved in their thinking to continuous monitoring, continuous improvement, uh, I think is absolutely spot on. We saw that in the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. I know you and I have both been harping on that since June 1, and, and I think that's exactly where the department is expecting compliance programs to go. Yeah, I I, I hear you on that, and uh, I, I think that the, going back to the update on the evaluation, the fact that they put in a separate discussion on data and making sure that that compliance officers have access either direct or indirect to data across the organization means they don't want to hear about any stovepipes and they want to make sure that compliance gets access to all the data so that it can do so that it can build a monitoring system a real-time monitoring system for purposes of um, monitoring and being proactive in the uh, compliance area and to try to anticipate where issues are coming up in advance. So um, I and I think that's reinforced again through the through the guidance. So um, let's go through a couple more. And these are sort of drilling down on some issues. But you mentioned early earlier, Tom, the uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy and the new guidance incorporates all of that. Uh, and more, and they actually added in uh, some more samples of declinations 
um, for us to consider without naming the parties, although they're publicly available now. But tell me, what's your impression of this? And, you know, how do you see the FCPA corporate? What was their intent in doing this? And what do you see about the importance of the FCPA corporate enforcement policy? Well, the, import, the importance of the policy cannot be overstated, I think, Mike, uh, for the, the obvious reasons that you start with a presumption of a declination. And to meet the or obtain a declination, you have to have self-disclosure, extensive remediation, a thorough investigation, and uh, remit of ill-gotten gain or profit disgorgement. If you have those four prongs, even with uh, actions at really at the board level, excuse me, at senior management level, uh, you can still sustain a declination because we have seen that since this time. It's appropriate for the 2020 um, Resource Guide Second Edition to to bring uh, this information around the corporate enforcement policy in. It, it certainly updates uh, that part of the DOJ policy, which is uh, reflected in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, or I guess the uh, whatever that is now called. Um, right. And so uh, it's it's how a prosecutor looks at a case. It's how the uh, U.S. Attorney will prosecute a case. It is appropriate addition. I also like your thoughts, though, on the the declinations. They are publicly available, but that's the thing about the resource guide, the second edition. It's all in one place. The laws in one place. The declinations are in one place. The hypotheticals are in one place. You and I could dig out the individual declinations with a little bit of work, and so could a compliance practitioner, but you don't have to. It's right there in one place for you. So as a resource guide, uh, as a one-volume compendium, it, it can't be beat. Yeah. And they also uh, added in some other policies, uh, the anti-piling on policy, the policy for the appointment of compliance monitors. Uh, and so, again, like you're saying, it's all available in one space. Um, one other issue that I was glad they updated as well was uh, and, you know, there's some uh, in terms of the definition of the foreign official in the Esquenazi case in 2014 that came out of the 11th Circuit and sort of resolved that issue once and for all, because I don't see any other circuits going differently in terms of the definition of instrumentality uh, and the definition of a foreign official extending to state-owned and state-controlled uh, entities. Um, we, I haven't seen, you know, ever since that came up, uh, we don't see, or have you see, are you aware of any sort of litigation or real challenges with regard to, um, this policy, this decision and, and the guidance here really sort of just lifts the analysis and gives us the tests for, um, for whether or not an entity is a state owned or state controlled entity. Well, there's certainly no legitimate challenges. Uh, there's there's always people who go off and claim that uh, the 11th Circuit are idiots and they don't know what they're talking about. But there's no legitimate challenge. There's been no substantive case law come out since that time. And the uh, Esquenazi case is not only a, a correct statement of law, but it still holds uh, literally across the United States. And uh, there's no without <clears throat> splitting the circuits, there'd be no way the Supreme Court would take the case. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I see. Let me go back also to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy because there also is a lot of discussion in the new in the new language in the FCPA guidance on successor liability and the application and DOJ's decision to apply the corporate enforcement policy to 
mergers and acquisitions. And you've written a lot on the sort of evolution of DOJ's thinking here going back to 2008 with the Halliburton uh, opinion letter 0802 in the strict policies that were applied at that point in time to where we are now. And I, I actually think if you're a merger and acquisition, if your company grows through that, the language here in the guidance is really, really important in that sense, the update. Uh, it is, Mike. It, it Maybe a little uh, uh, history there would work or be appropriate here. 0802, the Halliburton opinion release laid out the steps that you could utilize if you could not engage in pre-acquisition due diligence. And if you could not, you had to compress the steps post-acquisition closing. Because remember, if somebody was engaging in an FCPA violation before you acquired them and they continue to do so after them, it's no longer they, it's now you. The uh, actually, it was the 2012 original or first edition, rather, of the FCPA guidance, and you were the first person to, I think, really uh, articulate that the M&A section in that document laid out a safe harbor. They didn't use the word safe harbor. We didn't have any speeches talking about safe harbor, but I think you were really the first to say, hey, everybody, this is a safe harbor if you engage in pre-acquisition due diligence coupled with robust post-closure uh, integration, uh, forensic FCPA audit, and then turning over the results of uh, what you find to the government if there are any violations. Uh, then we had uh, Matthew Miner, and I believe July of 2018, uh, actually announced uh, there would be a safe harbor uh, addition to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy in the M&A arena. Then that was made a part of the U.S. Attorney's Manual in 2019, and now we have it, well, um, uh, as part of this. So the the thing the DOJ has been trying to communicate beyond that a safe harbor exists is that the pre-acquisition component is as important as the post-acquisition. Although, once again, I think if you can't do pre-acquisition, and that was a situation in Halliburton, they were prevented by the law of the country of the company they were trying to acquire from engaging in anything close to sufficient pre-acquisition due diligence. If you cannot do so, then you can have an accelerated post-acquisition plan, but uh, the the now the DOJ makes clear that you should do full pre-acquisition uh, due diligence from the compliance perspective, in addition to all of the other pre-acquisition due diligence you engage in, financial, et cetera. And I think the, the idea also of the post-acquisition integration FCPA audits requirement is what you're talking about, like pre-acquisition, you may not get access to all the documents that you need to do an audit. I would be surprised if you would prior to closing. And now what happens is companies come, uh, you know, and ask us, and we've uh, done this for some several companies, is once the closing happens, can you go in and do a deep dive type of audit? Uh, because, but the point is they've identified the area already where they want to do that audit based upon the pre-acquisition due diligence. And so that's why your point about it's, it's really important to do that is it also then informs your decision where to do any FCPA audits uh, in after the acquisition. Um, but DOJ's you know position here, like you said, has evolved over time. And, um, and I think that uh, the fact that the guidance, you know, sort of incorporated all of that change and that evolution is important for any company that's going through 
uh, or any company that has a you know growth strategy based upon acquisitions. Uh, they have to do that, uh, in my view. So, uh, well, let's let's turn to another area. There was actually a lot of writing. Uh, I saw a really good article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I, it wasn't by Dylan Tokar, but it was by someone on the how the guidance, the revised guidance, emphasizes the importance of accounting controls, internal controls. And um, what were your thoughts on that, Tom, in terms of as you read the guidance? So absolutely, the accounting uh, provisions have two components, internal controls and books and records. Uh, I don't think it's new news that uh, you have to accurately record uh, your payments in your uh, books and records. So if you engage in bribery and corruption, you have to accurately record it as bribery and corruption, which of course no one does. They hide it as marketing expense, charitable donation, uh, gifts, travel and entertainment, uh, employee expense reimbursement or something like that. So a reemphasis of both prongs of the accounting provisions, um, books and records, but more importantly and more focused, I think, Mike, on internal controls. You and I have both said for a long time that internal controls are the backbone of your compliance program. I think that was the clear import from the uh, resource guide, second edition, that the Department of, excuse me, the Securities and Exchange Commission certainly believes that. And I think the DOJ really adheres to that position now. I want to read there's this quote to me is really important, Tom, that was added to the guidance. And I think it shows the importance of the interaction of compliance controls with with accounting controls. They said, quote, although a company's internal accounting controls are not synonymous with a company's compliance program, uh, comma, an effective compliance program contains a number of components that may overlap with a critical component of a company's internal accounting controls. And that made me think of, okay, gifts, meals, and entertainment, and you know expenditures like that, or your use of discounts, rebates, um, you know, other ways that may be used to funnel money to distributors to pay bribery. To me, what this is saying is, uh, look, compliance, you overlap with internal controls. You better be involved in these accounting controls. And I don't know if there are many CFOs who are going to let compliance, you know, into the room to talk about these types of internal controls. But I think that's another challenge that I think is coming up. And I think DOJ was trying to give some support to the compliance function here on that issue. Mike, let me take that from a little bit different angle, uh, because my perspective on that is uh, really what you suggested, except that I would say 98% of the controls you need, compliance controls you need, you already have. Whether that's, and, and I say, and, and, and when asked for example, I say, do you have a gifts, travel, and entertainment re, uh, expense reimbursement policy? Well, everyone says yes. Why do you have it? Because it's mandated by the IRS. What do you require? Well, uh, they have to have a receipt. They have to tell us where they went. They have to tell us who they entertain and they have to attach the receipt. Then they have to tell us how expensive it was and they have to sign it. And I said, do you require that? And the answer is always, well, we should. Um, whether they have the rigor to, to, man, to, to follow through and mandate that control. And then, of course, you have supervisor oversight. They have to sign off on it. Then it goes to accounting accounts payable who re, should review the entire submission uh, for accuracy. And then uh, that's your second uh, control uh, mechanism. And at that point, the employees re, uh, reimbursed for the expense. Uh, they call that a financial control, uh, but that's a compliance control. 
And uh, the same is true for a rebate. The same is true for a discount. The same is true for a uh, distributor uh, uh, discount. So all of those are financial controls that a company should have in place. And uh, the compliance practitioner doesn't have to change those. Uh, the employee expense uh, reimbursement example I gave, what do you what do you need from an FCPA perspective? You need the person's title right. so you can tell if they're a government official or not. Right. Um, and so that's it. And that's something that they should be recording anyway, because there's always a place on your expense reimbursement form for the person's title that you took to dinner. So right. um, I, I would say that 95 percent to 98 percent of the controls you need from the compliance perspective are already in place and compliance doesn't have to change anything. Uh, they need access to that information. And that's the data, data, data component from the 2020 update of the evaluation. But um, I really don't think in most cases that companies are going to need to, uh, in a large measure, uh, revise their internal controls from the compliance perspective. I think they're already there from the financial perspective. And that's an, that's an interesting perspective because I think you're right that maybe part of the data access provision that was done, you know, revised in the evaluation was not, not just because DOJ hears about problems between HR and compliance and getting access, but maybe what they're also seeing is that uh, they're not getting access to the financial data that they need to ensure compliance. Um, and that, and I think DOJ's theme of we want compliance officers to have access is part of the overall broader picture, which is they want these chief compliance officers to be empowered, to be independent, and uh, you know to have the the authority to do certain things, and then to also have adequate resources. Don't you think? Also, that's a theme from the department. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, Tom, thanks for uh, for taking the time today. I wanted to close with sort of one you know observation, if you might have it, in terms of if you put this together with the evaluation factors you know that were just released the one thing that i've noticed in these revisions is that these are not like simple small revisions they're all sort of important when you put them all together and what's your thought on you know what what is what is doj trying to say or what are they trying to do and do you anticipate more revisions you know even like on an annual basis they may start to revise both of these documents I really don't have an appreciation or feel for the cadence of revisions, but uh, 10 years ago or eight years ago, you and I would say, okay, let's try to read the tea leaves. Uh, we don't have to read the tea leaves. It's in black and white. DOJ expectations right. are, are not set in the enforcement actions, although they are, but we don't have to read enforcement actions to figure out what the DOJ and SEC are thinking. They're telling us what we're thinking. And if you talk to any corporate lawyer with sort of 20 plus years of experience, they will tell you, I've never seen a, a government agency uh, pro provide this sort of detail about what their expectations are around uh, our area of the law. And I talked to numerous uh, compliance practitioners. These are fabulous resources. They not only tell us what DOJ expectations are, but they set the minimum standard. And if you meet these minimum standards, you can go in, and I think, make a straight faced argument to the Department of Justice. Yes, we had a violation uh, here. Here was how it was uncovered. Here are the steps we took to figure out what happened. And here are the steps we took to uh, remedy or fix it. 
and you have a, a great uh, argument for a full declination. Uh, conversely, if you just make the decision not to self-disclose, if you follow these steps and the DOJ later finds out, I think you can take that same information to them uh, uh, around that, that as well. So it's clear the department has communicated a wealth of information. The resource guide second edition once again is i think the single best one volume compendium of all things fcpa uh, the evaluation fleshes out the hallmarks of an effective compliance program so that we know the minimum the doj expects and you can use that as a benchmark you can use that as a roadmap uh, you can use that in a variety of ways for your own corporate compliance program Tom, I couldn't have said it any better. I appreciate your uh, your analysis there. I think everybody should take that to heart. Uh, and frankly, uh, let's you know type it up, frame it, and put it in your uh, boardroom and make sure that everybody sees it. Uh, because that to me was the perfect statement of exactly what the department I think is trying to do here uh, and what they're trying to communicate. So Tom, thanks again. Uh, thanks for the time and uh, Look forward to catching up with you later, whether it's on Everything Compliance or uh, in another podcast. We can try to do it on uh, uh, on Why a Duck as well. So uh, talk to you soon, and thanks again. Okay. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com. Come